Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 9th of April with myself, Andres Fantanar, and my colleagues Peter White, Simon Thompson and Harry Morgan. You're saying, Peter, that the UK government's gone down a blind alley with its... Oh, God, yeah. I mean, the thing is that the government keeps sticking to the same formula. A third or 30% nuclear, a third renewables, a third gas turbines with carbon capture. And we all know that can't happen. Everybody who's in the business knows that that's utterly unreasonable. By the time we get to about 2035, the cost of gas turbines with CCS will be so prohibitive, they're just not going to be considered anywhere. And in the UK, because we pay quite a lot for our gas, it's probably going to happen about 2030. So anything that they do to start a new gas turbine, it's got a 10-year lifetime even though it should have a 35-year life and debt will be... Um, but if, if what the UK government wants to do is they want to demonstrate that they're right by... And, and this is supposedly an Equinor project working with SSE, one of the big six in the UK. But uh, also they've got this sort of joint group around Humber, which includes a load of other people like BP that are of building this pipeline to take carbon and dump it under the North Sea, uh, a site that Equinor has provided. And so they just, and we don't see the level of subsidy going on here. All we know is that SSE and and Equinor have made this announcement and that a final investment decision won't happen for a couple of years and that the turbine won't built built till 2027. Um, And in the case of the hydrogen turbine, 2030, um, they'll just be, they'll switch them on and they'll be bankrupt straight away. They're not looking at how rapidly renewals are dropping in price. They're listening to the wrong people. God knows what the Climate Change Committee is telling them, because this, you know, the idea that nuclear is going to continue to be installed in the UK till it's 30% of our um, baseload is worrying, because at the moment the UK is paying £92, or, or will pay when Hinkley Point C is finished, £92 per megawatt hour for 25 years after that. Of course, you know, if you go for a wind turbine, you're looking at 40 uh, to £44. We're, we're paying four times as much for our electricity because we've got an incompetent government, because they believe people like British Petroleum. They believe British Petroleum, Equinor, the other members of this this group, all oil companies, the national, except for the national grid, Shell, Total, you call them Total, any, uh, uh, all of these people in this cluster that are basically um, going to create blue hydrogen, i.e., are all selling a story to this government. And they're buying it hook, line, and sinker, and it's going to cost the country a fortune. Yeah, I feel like it's almost the same as what we've always said about Drax and their biomass costs, which will again be sort of more expensive than energy that we've got now. I think um, it's these companies that have been sort of historically at the centre of the, the British energy industry that suddenly not going to be at the centre of the energy industry that the government's saying, I don't know how we're going to live without these, but we need to keep them going as we, as we can. I think, yeah, what they really need to do is focus on on the new companies that might not necessarily be British founded, but will definitely have a large presence in Britain, like, like but certainly Orsted for offshore wind. And I think, yeah, the companies really that are backing offshore wind to a large extent. It's interesting um, what you've said about nuclear not sort of existing beyond 2030, because obviously a lot of the existing UK nuclear plants are going to be retired by then. I personally wouldn't fully rule out small modular reactors being installed sort of nearby. Oh, no, I'm not ruling out SMRs. No, no. But but again, 
you know, they're coming down from 92 pounds per megawatt hour to 75. They're not, they're not, they're not competing with renewables. No, definitely not. I think it's more of sort of a direct replacement of what we've already got to make sure that we actually can achieve sort of a low carbon future um, in this in the near term, rather than having to keep sort of these legacy gas assets basically going forward. Yeah, but they want they, they keep saying 30% gas, 30% nuclear, 30% renewables. It's going to be 70% renewables, bit of nuclear, no gas. I mean, I think the nuclear will actually. In the UK, will it rise? It's going to stay roughly flat. The, the ones that get retired will be replaced by SMRs, and they'll be happy to have that. It's the way everybody's married to a baseload, the whole um, idea that you're not just paying for the electricity you use, you're paying for the electricity that's available as a baseload, even if you don't use it. You know, grid modernization should eliminate that. The Americans, we always thought were late to the party, and here they are. The Biden administration focusing on grid modernization, which is exactly what it needs. Uh, right. Another thing they've been going on about this 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 government has been wave power. We're an island. We should be at a harness wave power. You wrote a piece this week which finally convinced me that maybe some wave power will be in the mix. Yeah, wave power has always been one of those sort of fringe renewable technologies that's really sort of struggled to. Well, I mean, it it won't compete directly with wind and solar. I think that's really become clear. But I think wave power has really started to carve out a few maybe sort of more niche areas where it will start to supply power. I think the first of those is sort of offshore sort of microgrids where you've got islands where you've got maybe a low power demand, but an exceptional resource for waves where maybe it's more difficult to install wind and solar panels. But the second one, which is what we focus on this week, is actually installing wave power in conjunction with other offshore renewables obviously that you've got the benefits there that you can share mooring you can share installation costs transmission costs which through offshore wind for example can often be around sort of 30 percent of the overall project what we've seen this week is a company called bombora we've sort of done a bit of research about and have seen them really sort of focusing their uh, technology offering on floating wind and actually installing these membrane modules on floating on the sort of base of floating platforms the way that they work is it's almost like squeezing out a roll of to- a toothpaste, really. The wave goes over the top and it sort of forces wind out and then into a generator, basically. And then you get this uh, electricity. And while we've only seen kilowatt scale uh, units in the past, uh, we're actually seeing sort of megawatt scale pilots being installed now. They've got projects being installed um, at Pembroke Dock pretty much as we speak in Wales. But the sort of commercial size of these projects will be sort of three to four megawatts. So when you can add that to a floating turbine, uh, that can actually sort of boost the output by sort of 30 to 40 percent without actually having to increase the sort of capital costs around the installation. And it can be more if if you currently have weak wind. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's the thing that would be really good for for wind developers is it, it does provide sort of a more guarantee that there will be some output of the project at any given time. Um, so, way- so what we've got here is is the balance of system costs. So the problem with most of these, if you put them in a dock, the tide's either in or it's out. And if you put them under the water, you get less of a, depending on how deep you go, you get less of a, of a movement that drives the electricity. Um, and what you really want is something which is always four or five metres under the water. Yeah, and I think generally around 10 metres under the water is a sort of sweet spot that um, Bombora certainly is focusing on. OK, so the problem we've had is if you try and do that on the coast, it keeps the costs down, but the water isn't always there. So you needed floating platforms to come along and to be planned for the future. And that, that means offshore wind is naturally the right place to go. Like the wind, the waves aren't always powerful, but they're always moving. 
And I think these rely on movement, not the power of the movement. So I think in the end, they could be like a base load. Yeah, they could be a flat uh, output that just underwrite the whole the whole wind farm. Uh, I think that's going to be really useful in convincing people that the output from offshore is is going to be flatter than, say, solar. Yeah, definitely. And I think especially in countries like the UK, having that sort of 30 to 40 percent boost in terms of the capacity, but as a base load will really boost confidence for that. Um, so sort of the targets can be met in terms of these platforms. It'll be really interesting to see it, actually, because I think that's going to be a trend we see more and more over the next sort of five, ten years is hybrid parks in, in these sort of offshore environments. I think seeing floating solar incorporated with uh, offshore wind might be something we start to see if strong enough platforms can be built. I think potentially having co-located storage with those projects to reduce the transmission costs is something we could also see as well. Why is Bombora located in Australia? Is it just because Australia has a lot of university educated scientists that do this kind of thing or is it a good place for its product? That, that's an interesting question because um, Waveswell, which is another one of the large wave, company, uh, wave power companies or the most exciting wave power companies we've discussed, are also a, an Australian company. I think purely it's due to the fact that uh, they're looking for this offshore resource. A lot of their um, load centres, well, all of their load centres really are on the coast. And the sort of pedigree that Australia have got with the waves for other industries, I think, is, is something that they're really focused on. So on the next subject, we've noticed, well, we found a gaping hole in the way people forecast electric vehicles into the future. And, and we've been pushing on that. And the, the Look Back in Anger report leverages off that because people are so wrong about the number of EVs that are being installed. In this quarter, we've got Q1 uh, numbers for uh, the UK, France, Norway, uh, even China. What's really exciting is we've been forecasting, you know, this sudden leap that we had in, in the second half of 2020 was from about 2.5% of European cars being EVs to 10%, and in some territories, 11 or 12% in December. So suddenly in March, you know, are we going to freeze at that level? Are we going to go 1% more each quarter? We've been able to see, and we, we've done an article on it, starting with the UK stuff, to, see, to say that we jumped to 16% of car sales are EV sales in, in March and, and averaging over the whole um, quarter is 13.8%. In France, same number. So another 4% growth just in Q1. And if this keeps this carries on, um, well, it's great that our look-backing angle reports forecast these numbers out to 2050 on the same formula that, that and we've hit these numbers bang on and everyone else is going to have to go away and look at their numbers again because they've got them wrong we didn't get the german numbers that are coming out any day all the other numbers are bang on those type of forecasts and china even 466,000 new energy vehicles registered in 2021 up to the end of march four times that number you get to two, the 2 million, just over 2 million that we forecast for China for this year. Everyone else is far forecasting less than half that number. They're wrong, we're right. And, that, and I love that. <laughs> well, why do you think everyone's for, uh, the, the, the others are forecasting it so wrong? I can t okay, I mean, in a nutshell, there's this idea called cognitive rigidity. If you are staring at a picture of an industry for 135 years that hasn't changed, you, the tendency is to say it won't change. And and you, you develop a mindset where whatever you're looking at, whatever evidence you get, you ignore it and you say it won't change. And I think that's the, the main reason. 
everyone's going, yeah, yeah, something that might happen, but it's only going to be a tweak. Mostly it won't change. And and they that's their fallback position. So they start off by, by saying, oh, well, it's grown this quarter, but sales will probably collapse. So we see situations like the IEA who've been forecasting the collapse of solar since the dawn of time. And every year solar just gets bigger and bigger. And they're still forecasting the collapse of solar. Andrew, it's your turn. Let's kick the ball over to you with, with concentrated solar power. We've It's been in the news the last couple of weeks. You did a little review of how, what China's doing with it. Uh, yeah, so back in 2016, actually, it uh, it decided on this 1.3 gigawatt uh, swathe of 20, 5,200 megawatt each um, pilot projects. Now, it, it's funny kind of to see China call it a bunch of pilot projects when it adds up to 1.3 gigawatts, which was a quarter of, um, I think it's it's still a quarter of the total installed in the, on the planet. And because it was such a small industry, such a small pipeline, they kept on getting supply issues and delays. And we've seen another one, uh, another 50 megawatts limp across the finish line just this year, and there's still a few left. Uh, of those. But now we're seeing projects that are actually the real deal, not not pilot projects. Very often, probably at least every month or so, you see some kind of complex with a lot of wind, a lot of solar, uh, photovoltaics, and then it'll mention, oh yeah, we we also have a few hundred megawatts of concentrated solar power. China has this big desertified northern region, and even some of the area around Beijing actually is dry enough, has low enough cloud cover that you can put down some concentrated solar power. And the appeal of this is that it will never compete with photovoltaics for generation, but it has huge storage capacity. It can easily, you know, a typical uh, plant, it might cost five times as much as photovoltaics, but then it, that includes 10 hour storage. And so that's very useful for uh, these kind of complexes, uh, including hydrogen. I mean, it's heat storage. It's, I mean, mostly it's stored as heat. Yeah. So, so fundamentally, you throw the heat at industrial processes and uh, home and district heat services. But, but if you have to convert them into electricity, they have a steam turbine in there and they, and they are a thermal source of electricity inefficient as that is it's still there mm. if you if you need it and and they cost justify it on the on the heat element um i, I think this is brilliant for china if they solve i mean it, they're slightly backwards in the in that it's it's still molten salt and it still needs to be higher temperatures to help with the steel industry and the, and the cement industry but they only have to look across the water at what the us is doing mm. and they'll just copy that and they're using different mediums to contain the heat. And they'll copy that and then they'll improve on it and then they'll make it cheaper. And they'll drive that into their industrial processes as a, as, as a heat source with potential electricity benefits as well. And I, they will let you do it. That's you know, so the one thing about a, a government that's, that runs things from the middle is there's no one to say no. Yes, they split into regionals. We've seen in the coal in the coal debacle that the Chinese central have given regions power to present their own coal platforms, and that's led to too much coal. They don't have the kind of regional problems that you get in America, through the States, and through India. They have iron control, and, and they can get this done. And I think this, this is a great resource for Chinese industry. 